On this episode, I have the legendary Bob Wright. Gary Vay, Nerd Chuck, and this is episode 195 of the Ask Gary V Show. And we have a guest. Yep. Mr. Wright, Bob, why don't you tell the Vayner Nation, why don't I give you 60 to 90 seconds here to create a little context, your career, uh, the book, kind of the things that you're involved with, obviously. Actually, you know what, let's throw it to India. India, we've created curated a show here today. By the way, let me jump in here for a second. Sorry, Bob, for a second. Uh, We are trying to do more thematic shows. We obviously had guests the other day for influencer marketing. We've got three or four more in the bucket. Uh, And this falls into that series. So why don't you tell the Vayner Nation, because they like you very much, uh, what we're doing here, where the questions are coming from. So the questions today are all from nonprofits and people who work at nonprofits or NGOs. Um, And we reached out to some people that we know from the Vayner Nation or just people that we know from, you know, being on the internet and on Twitter using a very Gary tactic of getting out there into the trenches and searching for questions and ask people to film their questions into videos and that's what they're going to be. Bob, I think throwing it to you under that framework, maybe a little bit about your professional career and maybe how you fit within the context of that world a little bit. Sure. Uh, and uh, the, Maybe the unique angle I can talk about is that uh, we formed Autism Speaks uh, while I was working as the CEO of NBC Universal. Uh, and it, when we we did all that kind of work while I was still working, uh, and that surprises some people, but you know, you can do more than one thing at the same time. I've been, I was CEO that. for 22 years at, at that point in time, and it did, uh, it, it caused us to have to really be very focused on how we used our time so that I wasn't interrupting my work or other people's work to, to do this. And I brought in people uh, from board members or established people in, in the New York community that had some interest in it or had a relationship with a, a, a person in their family or a, some friend. Uh, the, one of the people didn't have that, but he, he did have a history with dyslexia and he knew how difficult it was for children to learn. So we, we put this whole organization together in, 19, in 2004 and I made a determination that we wanted to run this like a business. And so I said, we're going to have all of our financials are going to be audited. We're going to file at every single state in the United States. You have to file twice. You have to file to raise money. We have to file to operate in there. Uh, And we did all these things in in a very businessy way so that we we could get out. And when we actually started in 2005, we could get going and we we could act anywhere in the country. And then the other thing I looked at is I looked for other organizations that were dealing with uh, children or adults with autism. We wanted to deal with children because it's more difficult to deal with adults because their their resources are are not as attractive. And children, we knew that you could help them. And, you know, if you miss all that helping as an adult, you're losing an awful lot. So we wanted to start with people that I know we could, we could, we could help, like sure. my grandson, who's yes. the reason why. He's 14 years old, by the way, and he's, uh, he's not going to be working for Google anytime soon. He has very limited communication ability. I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, he's a 3 or a 4, perhaps. And he can only talk when he's heavily prompted. 
So he, he needs people with him all the time. He can't be left alone because you just don't know what he'll do. He doesn't communicate and give you the signals as to what his next idea is going to be. You know, he could, you know, it, yeah. it, it's that sort of a thing. So uh, well, anyway, we, we did all this and then we looked at three organizations and I went out and met, met with these parent organizations. They're all kind of exhausted. That's what happens in not-for-profits, especially disease-related ones. People work very, very hard and then all of a sudden they, they usually, their, their view is they want to do a lot of science, they want to do a lot of things, they make a lot of commitments, but they get tired of raising money. And it, it's, ti it's tiring. And, and pretty soon they, they've, they've got debt or they're just... Do you feel the business DNA of being a CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world for so long was uh, a massive advantage in running that Autism Speaks organization with that DNA because you felt the vulnerabilities in organizations that have been run in a political, bureaucratic, more kind of corporate, less entrepreneurial environment? Absolutely, and, and I, but I'd also say that any, anybody that has business experience uh, it should not forget that business experience going into a not-for-profit. You, 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 you build up skills and you build up ability to manage people or deal with people. You don't want to lose that because you're a not-for-profit. Well, it's one of my biggest arguments. I, I yell to my audience, a lot of people in startup culture, that so many venture capitalists, even though they've built businesses, she or he has built a business in the past, they start giving advice to these startups that are more predicated on raising finances than actually building a business. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a huge parallel. But uh, before we go into more of the nonprofit and talk a little bit more about Autism Speaks, um, I, want to, uh, I want to respect the audience, which I know is a very heavy business organized audience. And um, I, I think some would find it quite fascinating on how you made the rise to such a prestigious CEO job. So how, for kicks and giggles, give me 60 seconds on where you were born, what kind of kid you were, what then happened and then what was the transition of the, how did your career go? I grew up in the New York area on Long, on Long Island. Did you I, grow up a Jets fan? A Jets fan, yes I did. Well, yeah. I, long, I was on Long Island. Yeah, yeah that's name the, it, all the good Jets, stuff. Jets, yes. Jets. All right, this is getting better by the second. Keep going. And uh, I, uh, uh, I wanted, my, my, my goal in life is I wanted to be Edward Bennett Williams, which at the time was America's most famous lawyer, courtroom lawyer. And, and he, he, he had all of the toughest cases and all of these remarkable things. And uh, uh, I, I, I went to high school in Long Island, I went to college, and I went to law school. And I, uh, and I, I, was, I was married, I'm married to Suzanne Wright. We've been together for 50 years and 48 years married. Amazing. And by the way, she unfortunately on October 29th last year is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, so we're really having a struggle right now in that in that respect. So I'm, and now I'm right back into the the, the not-for-profit issue. And now I'm dealing with my own trying to trying to develop met, uh, medicine based on her tumor. But you know it, it never ends. You just kind of keep learning. Uh, anyway, I uh, I did a bunch of different things, and I ended up uh, having gone through the Virginia bar, the New York bar, the Massachusetts bar, and the in the New Jersey bar. Well, no wonder it wasn't scary to register in every state for autism species. You basically did it in the law world. No, it wasn't, it wasn't scary at all. But, and uh, so I was a pretty good lawyer and I did a lot. And I, and How I, long did you practice? I was in private practice for five and a half years. I, I, and I got recruited to, uh, um, to Pittsfield, Massachusetts to work for Jack Welsh. And he, they had the fastest growing businesses in, in uh, GE at that time in the 1970s, early 70s. And I came in as a lawyer and I very quickly trans I moved into business. Hmm. 
Um, on the law background was fantastic. It worked just like I'm saying, business background works in Harvard, law background works in business. And uh, I just kept pyramiding on what I knew. Uh, and I got a chance, you, you have to take chances. We moved 11 times uh, before I was 40. Uh, wow. Suzanne and I and three kids. Um, and people don't do that now. I saw a statistic the other day that says that it, since 1990, only 10% um, of people move uh, out, move uh, a couple of times. Uh, it, it's remarkable. I moved 11 times. Unbelievable. And, and, but that was all necessary for me. One of the things that I learned early is if I wanted to be successful and I was ambitious, and I was ambitious, then I needed to take full responsibility for my own career. And I, I, I could not, there's no excuses. All the excuses have to be, you, you, it's, if it's a rainy day, that's not an excuse. If I got a bad, if a, a bad person I'm working for, you should get out of it. You shouldn't work there. Uh, it, the, the fact that I got sick is that's not an excuse. No, you, once you Do you know that I mentally decided six years ago to not get sick again and I haven't? Bob, I, I know you, that sounds strange. No, I, I, I understand. No, I, I have a big belief that we don't understand the brain. Yeah. And it's, it, I don't like saying it out loud. I kind of threw it at you because I, when, when, I when I hear myself even saying it, I'm like, who's this cuckoo bird? But I, I totally, uh, I totally I'm, I'm smiling and I'm sure a lot of the audience is smiling right now because maybe I throw a couple more curse words into the rant that you just had, yeah. but it is absolutely the same exact word. Listen, the market is the market is the market. They don't care about your headaches. No, it, it is what it is. And if, you, if it doesn't work out, you have to start over again. Or you have to start, you have to go someplace else. Do, do, you, else. Feel, do you feel that that, that experience as a businessman, an entrepreneur, do you feel like that gave you the intestinal fortitude to be able to deal with life's challenges as they've come in your family life? I, I do, I, I absolutely do. Um, I mean, we faced a, we, we, we accepted a lot of challenges. So I, and you know, some of them were really difficult to overcome, um, but that was what I wanted to do. So I'm, it's ironic that you brought up staying well. I, I'm in the position right now where I can't get sick. Right. I can't get sick because my wife is, needs me and she is desperately sick and there can't be two of us sick. So I have to do everything right now to make sure I do not get sick. And that's, that's the, like my that's number that. one issue that, that I'm facing in this particular situation. Yes. Uh, but anyway, we did, we, we did a lot of different things and we, I had a chance, I raised my hand, that General Electric was trying, to, the, the Cox family, an old, uh, old line family in Atlanta, had Cox Communications still alive, big, big company. Uh, they wanted to sell part of their business. Uh, I worked my way down to become the president of the company. Uh, and the cable business was what I was focused on. It was brand new at that time. I thought this was going to be really exciting. And I went down there. I gave up all my stuff with... Why don't you tell a lot of my friends real quick here who are watching as I yell about why Snapchat or mobile devices or other things are going to be good. Why don't you give us a little bit of a history lesson. This may run a little bit longer than most episodes, but I'm going to take full advantage of having you here. Why don't you tell all the youngsters, these 20, 30-year-olds who are watching right now, or even 40-year-olds who are caught in an interesting generation of non-innovation, on what the people of the world in the early 80s said about this cable thing and its the establishment. What was the establishment's point of view on HBO, on cable, on these cockamanian things that were above channel 13 well, in America? Well, it's a little ironic. It reminds me of the Trump thing. The, the people loved it. Business people hated it. And the institutions didn't like it at all. Mm -hmm. And everybody wanted to stay where they were with a three-channel three channel universe and, 
and, and that was good enough. And cable was, was opening up these other doors and people liked it. The customers liked it. Yes. But the institutions didn't like it. The institutions that had something to lose. The institutions that were lending money, they didn't like it. The uh, investors were very worried about it. Uh, uh, the people that were in Did you Did you understand that 36 channels was gonna be a good thing that there was good, that, that that was going to be successful. Did you believe the ESPNs, the MTVs at that point in your career? Did you say, okay, the, in the way that I look at a Snapchat or a Musically, yeah, yeah. and and I say what you just said, and they hear me say it. It's not that I'm saying this. 150 million people are downloading it and and using it each month. I'm not making any predictions. The data's there. Did right. you see that? Well, but that's what that's exactly where we felt. Now we 30 we, when I was came in, it was only 12, 13 channels, and 36 was a big jump. We had the biggest cable system in the country in San Diego, and that was 36. That was a big deal. And but we, we and did people say silly things like, "How are you going to fill all that programming?" Yeah. And well, we actually, yeah, yes. And and we, but, but that gave us a chance to try to produce, right? Fill that programming ourselves, and that was not something cable operators did at that time. They 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 hung wires and they split the boxes in and they and they ran the. Is that the where Ted Turner did some smart yes. maneuvering? Ted Turner never was a cable operator. He was a producer. That's exactly right. Yeah, he was on the other side, and we were on the side of the cable operator. We were one of the first systems to to put CNN on. We were one of his first customers, uh, but he was never he never wanted the wire business. That's right. Uh, and uh, but he he was a, he just was a visionary that had the energy to force through his thoughts, regardless of how difficult it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and I admired that. We we he, he lived in Atlanta. That's where he of course, lived. So. Of course. But, but so we, we got into that. And the Braves stunk at this point, right? Just for everybody's the context. The Braves, the Atlanta Braves, they were terrible. Yeah. Do you find that to be an intriguing fun fact? Uh, well, I, I remember going to a lot of games. And it <laughs> rained, seemingly it was always raining. And I was sitting out there and for, for an hour and a half in the rain. All right, India, let's get into a question because I have a feeling I'm going to just like milk this into a four-hour video. Hey, Gary. Hey, crew. First of all, most I absolutely love the podcast. Secondly, I... I absolutely love this book, instant bestseller. My name is Jerome Hardaway. I am a head geek in charge for Vetsu Code, also known as Fraggo, formerly United States Air Force. What we do here is that we teach veterans how to program 100% online at zero cost to the veteran by utilizing a pragmatic approach and focusing on one language and problem solving with that language. Our guys and girls of the armed forces are focused more on solving problems and thinking like a programmer as opposed to learning how to do the same procedures in multiple languages. Thanks to this, we've been able to uh, help 75 veterans gain jobs in the software technology sector totaling into $3.2 million worth of salaries. My question to you, Gary Vee, is how do we get into new communities that are tech-rich and talent-rich and be able to build relationships with those communities even though we are not natively there, such as New Orleans or uh, Boulder, Colorado? Thank you. Uh, thank you for supporting veterans and thank you for supporting Vets Co. Political help. Go ahead. Get, politi get political help. That's a very good story. You're, gonna, you're going to need some governmental assistance. I hate to say that because it's, and at the same time, you can raise money. You can raise money, but you, you can raise money privately. But your, your argument for what you're doing has a lot of political clout. Sure. And if you go down and if you're in Louisiana and you want to go into New Orleans, there's 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 enough politicians down there that would see this as an opportunity to, to make really, themselves look good. To make themselves look good and do something in the community, I, I think that you you have a a good political handle there to use. 
And by the way, once you start raising money from with the politics, you'll get you get individual you'll get other people wanting yeah. to join the yeah. join the program. I think that's really this is why it's, it's a good sounding this it's is, a good sounding uh, situation. This is why this show's so fun when you have two people that can give advice because they come from such different angles, and I think that's incredible good advice. I would also say, my friend, that one of you know getting in front of the tech companies who are going to hire your developers when you're not in silicon valley you're not in boulder is actually stunningly easy it's called grit like it, you know you can you can spam people i'm sure you've had people through your career that have in your career probably sent you later letters and faxes and now emails. I've been, in my professional career, it's been mainly email where they'll email me every day. Like, Gary, I need to see you for 15 minutes. I need to get to you. I need to get to you. So you don't want to get into stalker land and be inappropriate. But if you want to email Slack, if you want to email Facebook, if you want to email Uber or Airbnb, these companies are becoming bigger by the moment too and are also looking to have relationships no different than a politician yeah. that they can put on their website or put in a press release. While they're getting yelled at for setting up in Ireland and not paying taxes, they can throw this kind of thing and you're right. I mean, your narrative, and we're about to hear some more, but th- th- nobody's ever, ever in the history of America going to publicly say, yeah, I'm not that into the veterans. No. Like, they're, they're just, there's zero. There's people who will disagree on many things but not that one. Right. And so um, I would say perseverance of reaching out to the companies in Boulder, Silicon Valley, New York, and, and trying different tactics, and also using Twitter search and engaging with them because that's the one cocktail party of the internet where there's permission for you to create a relationship. Those are two tactical things that I would do. The other thing to do Please. would be to try to, try to get another, like, uh, another location, somebody working with you in the tech, more tech-sensitive areas. Uh, it, you know, not necessarily Silicon Valley, but certainly New York or Boston, so that you can, you can take this and have developed some, like yourself down there, now you've got three groups out there, and then now, now that's where you're going to be able to spread and job opportunities may be coming back both ways. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to deploy kind of remote, you know, teams, uh, especially around an issue like this, because so many families are affected by it, and so many people just, I'm not affected by it, but I'm passionate about it, I've been involved in it, so I think there's, there's a lot of tactics there. India? This one, this is my dad. This is your dad. India, this is very, very exciting. Your dad has made the show. He's made the show. Hello, Gary V. Love the show. Please don't stop producing it. I watch every episode. A question from the New World Symphony of Miami Beach. Our stability really depends on having a group of core donors who give continuously year after year after year. Their generosity is essential to our sustainability. So we know how to do this with the old-fashioned ways using snail mail and email, but how does one do this with social media? Thanks in advance for your answer. Bye now. Now, is he dealing with vets or what? With, uh, he works for a symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestra. Oh, symphony orchestra. Do you like that kind of music? I do, but it's that's that's always a tough one to raise money with, right? Because it's you know it's it's always a it's more nice to have yeah. versus the kind of heavy stuff that we've been talking about in the yeah. beginning, or even even the vets. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple things. That's that a big place. There's a lot of music down there, so that's there should be able to be do that. Do that. Well, the interesting part of his question that I find fascinating. He's also a very good-looking man, India, which makes a ton of sense. Uh, uh, is that I never, so VaynerMedia, my company, and I'd be curious to hear in your company days, back to business, always dictating my nonprofit, my family life, the structure, the, the thesis. When I started this client service business, the thought of letting a client be too big of a percentage of my overall revenue, 
I was visceral to. I even turned down some opportunities because I didn't even want to open Pandora's box. I would tell you the thing that scares me there is having any organization that relies on, and you've seen this a lot at the levels you've played at, one to three people being so passionate that they're driving so much of it and then think something could change. A life event could change where something else starts taking attention and we're sitting right here in a real life example. So, uh, I have that problem myself with our, with our What's in the Speaks because Suzanne and I have raised so much of the money and we have been so much of the infrastructure that we provided and everything that pulling back is there's a, there, I can see there's, there's a, a guilt. there's a gap there yeah and, and it's got to get emotional filled. guilt for you right yeah I mean, like well yeah yeah it's, you know we built this and now you guys have got to run it and they're saying well we don't have you so you know so I, I think the answer is you know this is funny to have you on the show your daughter's part of this ecosystem I think you need to create content whatever was compelling in male form. <laughs> <laughs> that got people to say, I want to call and have a coffee and find out more about this. You need to create the videos and pictures that can do that in a social media environment. But here's some good news. You can target people of a certain wealth and demo and location on Facebook that could be very efficient and is better data than the historic snail mail data and, and create that. Listen, there's a lovely gal that I know knows a thing or two about this that you can, I don't want you hogging up any more time because you can chat to your lovely daughter about this. She knows the gig, so let's move on, India. Hi, Gary. First, I want to thank you for your Overnight Sensation video. All your stuff is great, but the Overnight Sensation video, when I get discouraged, I, I watch it and it kicks my ass. Thank you. The nonprofit sector is broken. Money controls everything. And for the nonprofit sector to change, and there hasn't been a unique idea, a brilliant idea, a disruptive idea in so, so long, it needs to change. And one of the examples that I like to use is coffee kiosks. Here's a coffee kiosk at YouTube. Google, there are almost every 150 feet. They're common at most startups. You you got free yogurt and free milk and free Red Bull and all kinds of free stuff. Here is our coffee kiosk. I'm CMO of a large nonprofit upstate New York. And it's not that we don't care any less about our employees. It's there's no funding. There's no funding for even free coffee. So the problem is the top. And how do we change that? How do we get funders to have a startup mentality? If you look at the startup world, you know, Twitter, Uber, Airbnb, these are ideas that might be considered radical, different, disruptive, but somebody funded them and they funded free coffee along with it. We are not going to see change in the nonprofit sector until the funding streams change that empower us to do the work. How can those of us in the nonprofit sector that care, how can we explain that? How can we affect change? How can this top-down change come into the nonprofit sector? You want to take a shot at this one? The answer, the answer to that is you've got to be blunt. You've got to go out and find some angels. Some people that, that you have reason to believe are interested in your non-for-profit 
and have some funds, have some, some ability, maybe they have a store, maybe they, they have, have money or something. And you have to get them and you have to be frank with them and do just what you're saying. We're trying to do all these things. We've got all these people volunteering, but we need, we need some startup money here. We need, we need some angel to help us get through this until we can have a, a larger thing. And I, if, if you beat around the bush with people, they'll say, well, I'll give you a small gift. I say, no, no, I, need a, I, need, I, need, I really need your help, big help. I got something to add on this. You mentioned Uber, Airbnb, and Twitter. These are the top 0.01% of startups. I know many startups. This startup, my company, started in the conference room of another company, and I guess we stole their free coffee and things of that nature. But the interesting thing is Robinhood and many other organizations have a lot of money. They have a lot of money. My biggest problem is there's a lot of NGOs that I know that have a lot of money and are wasting it or not deploying enough of percentage against the right thing. So I think we need to be a little bit careful here. There's thousands of startups that don't have free coffee. You're also talking about people being incentivized by capitalism. The reason people write checks to Google and Uber and Airbnb is because they want to make money back. And I think you have to play the reverse game in NGO which is much like the narrative of your life and I've always known since I was a young man because I always believed I'd be successful that the things that would capture my attention though I've become very involved in Charity Water and I've become very involved in Pencils of Promise and through Matt Higgins have been involved with you guys and done stuff here for Vayner with, for you guys as well with uh, Autism Speaks. Matt Higgins is on our board. I'm very aware. I know with all that being said that the things that get the most of my attention will be the things that affect me you know, now I can finally say it because very recently my brother announced my partner in this company, VaynerMedia, that he's going to be leaving in a month because he has Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, and you know, the pressure of it all is the one thing and he just wants to be proactive. Luckily everything's okay but he's just projecting and being smart. That is something that's pulling at my heart. In the same way that my money investing in a company pulls at my wallet, Crohn's is going to pull at my heart because it affects me. You need to go out and find the things that you're solving for, who are the 500, 5,000 wealthiest. That's the truth. People that are affected by the issue because your conversion rate is gonna be better. And I, I don't accept, and I love you and thank you for watching the show, but I do not accept this notion that you're gonna compare yourself to the five or six biggest internet companies in the world where I can take this camera with Stefan right now and walk down the street and show you real shitty offices from startups that didn't get that funding and are grinding. And guess what? Google, and I was at Twitter. I was at Twitter when there was 11 people in that office. It looked like crap. After they won, it looked nicer. Google tried to sell their company for a couple hundred thousand dollars to Yahoo. Their office wasn't amazing at the time. So we need to be careful of how we contextualize ourselves as well. India? Yeah. Oh, Kim. Kim. Oh, our Kim. Our Kim. Yeah. Kim. I love Kim. Hi, Gary. Um, I, here's my question for you. I am on the board of an organization in New York. It's a nonprofit called Art Connects New York. And we work with local curators and artists to do permanent art installations in social service agencies all around New York City. Um, it's an amazing organization. We have partnered with hundreds of artists and dozens of dozens of organizations, um, but it's also super niche. And so 
we are working really hard to broaden the base of people who are interested in Art Connects and ultimately will help donate to the cause. Uh, but with such a niche cause, and then we have one and a half full-time employees who work for the organization, they do everything from coordinating the installations to fundraising. Um, we are super strapped. And so we're looking for some ways that we can quickly gain momentum uh, to broaden interest in the organization, knowing that we have very, very limited resources. Thanks, Gary. My sense is, if you have a if you have a venture and it's it's got some complexity, you have to have some people or one person anyway that is really full time on this. Now she said one and a half, right? Whether that person is paid or not paid is irrelevant. They, yes. But you 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 if if everybody's a part timer, I don't see how anything. I, I, I don't see how I you agree. get it done, because it, it's somebody's always going to be looking at their watch in terms of I got to go and what. And, and you're, you're not, it's going to be hard to raise money that way. The other side of it is just as bad where you take the money you raise and you pay, you pay two people that are average to be there all the time. And now you've, now you've got, you got your, your energy level for the others goes down. I don't know all the details, but I was always from afar when I became aware of what you were doing here, was so impressed that you guys were able to do so much when you were so busy being CEO of one of the biggest, and obviously I don't know who was full-time underneath or well, what happened. First things, first things we did is I went out to recruit a, 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 a director, an executive director, okay. and I, I got a very attractive guy who had been in not-for-profit world for a long time with, with uh, cancer, or uh, leukemia, and, uh, and he had a good personality, and I, I knew that we could get him we trying to meld different these these groups together. You need somebody that's going to be full time on that issue, not part time. And he he was very helpful. We we were able to pull together three different parent driven organizations with very few full time people. And and but we had to every time we got to the scale, I had to have somebody full time in there. Sure. And, and, and Kim, and listen. It was a drag on the cost. It was just necessary. Kim, listen. We're we're not confused. And you know I'm never tone deaf. We're not confused that the air cover and the brand equity and the place where Bob was in his career is different than this organization and that's always quite important. I think the thing to really think about though is get that word quickly out of the equation. Unless you have a miracle situation where some art installation or art moment becomes so culturally relevant that everybody becomes aware and wants to donate, AKA the ice bucket challenge. People want to be cynical about that. The data is very real. They Incredible, very real. They had a moment, but that's a virality that comes around once in a generation and so we need to be much more practical in that those one and a half people, and they're incredible, I would like to think, look, I think anybody who devotes their careers or their, and all their time to a nonprofit are so passionate about that that they can be patient over a five to seven to 12 year window. Hey Gary, it's Carrier here with SurvivorRadio.org. We're an online radio station themed for the cancer community. Our goal is to provide both insight and monetary support for incidentals and cancer patients all around the world. We're a fairly new nonprofit with limited resources. So how do we grow both our listenership and funding in 2016? What platform should we be doing this on? Uh, we're trying to grow both, so looking forward to any answers, man. Thanks, love the show. And I noticed in the copy he says the older demo. Kerry, yeah. uh, I would tell you Facebook groups. I'm obsessed with Facebook group virality. I would go and search Facebook, look for groups, whether it's cancer support groups or just, 
you know, you know, a million, you know, people that are are passionate or or have vibes in that environment, or just even general, you know, medical or different groups of that nature, and literally email the admin, which you can do in those environments, try to join them, and see if those groups can bring some awareness. In the beginning, you have to ask. When you have nothing else, when you don't have dollars, you have you have your creativity and you have your grit, and you, so you have to ask. And so I think whether it's influencers, I mean, look, you just did it here. You asked on Twitter. You followed what we're doing. Now 50,000 people in a week will see this. You're gonna be linked up in here. Stefan, let's link up all the organizations because I want to make sure everybody clicks and finds out about them. And so in the same way that you asked and you took a shot here, and guess what? Hundreds of other people took a shot and didn't get on today's show, won't get the exposure. That's just the way the game works. And so I think Facebook groups though for the older demo is, for, is actually a very, very intriguing play. Any other thoughts from your standpoint on things that you've seen outside of your own ecosystem where you had of equity, Bob, things that you've watched from afar or have watched over the last 30, 40, 50 years of seeing things grow from not having any leverage in the beginning and them hacking their way or people that were able to get to you through your career that had no you know, relationship or anything but just reached out to you like, and, and you know, I, I'm thinking of a friend who reached out to Malone and a bunch of other titans in media yeah. and actually got to spend a day with most of them because most of them actually just said yes. Well, one of the, I, let me offer a comment to you that it's probably not directly on that point but something that's been bothering me for a, a year or so, people come to me and they ask me, you know, how do I get into the business, what, so forth. I, I think you, you first, you, 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 you want to, you want to look at yourself and decide what kinds of things you really want to be associated with. And you've got to kind of make some decisions. You just can't be dragging 15 different ideas. You've got to make some decision. But given the, given the situation today, especially with the internet, the best thing you can do when you're starting out is to get in the technical side of the business. Learn whatever you can on the technical side of the business. What you're doing here with a camera, when you're picking up information, how do you use the internet from a standpoint of the technical part? You become very valuable to other people. And whether it's a not-for-profit, especially a not-for-profit, where everybody wants to do, okay, they want to do Facebook groups and so forth. How many people know how to do that easily? And, and if, you, if, you get, if you really get comfortable in these areas, then you can be very, very useful and much in demand. And then you can Become a practitioner. Go figure. Actually have a skill. Go figure. And, and you, take, you keep learning. Once, you, once you're in here, you're learning and learning more. So you don't have to, I don't have to call up Ahmed every minute to, 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 to figure out why I, can't, why I can't do this or that and the other thing. It, make, it kills me. Yep. You know? And, and but it, it, if you're comfortable with it, it it's, you're, you're building a basis that's going to be very attractive whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit. And you can really help people and that's what, that's people looking to hire people that can help. 100%. Bob. Uh, as we're wrapping up the show, any uh, last thoughts? And then it's customary when somebody's on the show for them to get to ask the entire community a question of the day. Uh, and then, given the context of the show, anything, uh, any request from me and the Vayner Nation uh, that could be beneficial? A request of the day. Something a little bit new. Well, my, I guess my request is that since my, my real charity is Autism Speaks and we're all around the country and we represent. Uh, we represent people with autism and family with autism, and our our website is on all the time. We're we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, but our, our website has been our primary method of communicating with people. So if you have it via email as well. Yes, but if you have you have issues, you have questions, you want to be part of it, and you know something that could be helpful, please go there. 
and 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 and, and make yourself known. Uh, everybody will, will be happy to be happy to meet you, or ha ha uh, and, and it's very local because there's there's not a large community in the country that we're not active in. Fantastic. So we'll link that up. We'll make that linkable, Stefan. Let's make sure we get that all right. And what about Bob? A, a question of the day. This could be, you know, again, could be a business contextual question, an NGO space. Uh, we could talk about the jet. You can ask a Jets question. <laughs> in, in, in the mood. Uh, any any kind of a question of the day that you want to ask the Vayner Nation. Uh, or you know, let me ask you. I'll get. I guess uh, this is a kind of a general one. You know, one of the things that it appears that we're it's like personalized medicine. We're we're now doing personalized video, and since. It's more and more people want to control what, where, they, why they, where they use video. They have the tools now, the technical tools are there to do it. And, and there is a potential that that may get so far, but you, that also distance you from other people. If you're watching video and you're picking it out personally, uh, and if you're not connecting to other people, you're getting, you're getting more of a loner situation. Are so, you scared about what technology is doing, Bob? I'm not scared, no. I'm, I'm just worried that people will want this are going to do it, but they're going to realize at some point that they're not getting enough social connection if they're just doing personal video. If they're because everything's going to be available, everything. It's it's a, it's only a fraction of what's available today. There's going to be a lot more, and you're going to be able to to, to you you just if your video or your you're eating up a lot of time, and if you're not communicating with anybody else in that process, you're. I don't know. I don't know where that goes. Well, you know, I think you know this because I've been very uh, fascinated by it. Right? I'm curious if you know that. Exchanging data is different because you're exchanging with somebody. Well, I think you can also look at the argument the other way, Bob, right? Which is that in 1947, without these tools, if my cousin lived in St. Louis, I, I maybe was not communicating with that person at all or through, through yeah. written word. Or we can go back and read all the things that were said about the telephone and how it was going to destroy communication. Right, I think I think the interesting part of that question is it a negative or is it a positive, right? I, I don't know what it is. I, I just, you know just know that it's different. It's it's different, and I uh, you know it's I, I maybe we're going to be more of more into the mode of of using the tools of of only lasting fifteen minutes or twenty minutes or thirty minutes, and maybe that's the one. Of course, that's the fastest growing of all the apps. But maybe that's the way. Are you a big Snapchat enthusiast? I mean, I'm not, but I'm, Yet. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why I'm not. You know? Good. I like that. Because it allows you to clear your mind about it. You don't have to carry around this list of things you've said over the last you know, 10 years here. You can, you can start every day fresh. I mean, look, Bob, I, I think we're living, look, we're living through, I, we're living through, it's an evolution. I mean, you know, again, as being somebody who's lived a little bit longer than the rest of this room, you remember things where, Literally, people said Elvis Presley was the devil because he shook his hips. I don't know if you've seen what the kids do now, but it's a little bit more aggressive <laughs> than how good old Elvis brought it, right? And, and, and when you look at what people said, I mean, about the telephone or what, listen, wait a minute. I'm, I'm missing a big opportunity here. Many people said 36 channels on television was gonna ruin the kids because they were gonna have too much information mm -hmm. or what I grew up with, which was, I don't know if you know this, but Atari and Nintendo were gonna ruin me. And so I think the one thing on this issue that I think is very curious is I find the younger generation to actually be more social, not less. Yes, maybe us older folk, me included, everybody 40 and above that didn't grow up with this as kids may look at them as less social, but I would argue that they're just being social in a different way. 
I, I, I can, it's the, my real focus is, is video, is video a help or is it, is it, is it an objective or is it just an aid in, in the communication? Oh, well I think, that, I'm curious to see what everybody has to say. My friend. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much I wish for you well. It was a lot of fun. You keep asking questions, we'll keep answering them. <laughs>